question for you as we begin today's message. Do you have any scars? Do you have any scars? If you do have scars, like most people do, do you, rem- do you remember how you got them? Everyone, almost everyone in the world has scars and all of these scars that we carry have stories. I still and will always carry some scars from my childhood and the stories behind these scars that we all carry can actually benefit others as well. Maybe your physical scar can help prevent someone else from getting burned, injured, or hurt. Or perhaps even more significantly, yet often neglected scars that we all carry are the ones that we have in our hearts. Internal scars have stories that need to be acknowledged and confronted as well. This week marks exactly one year since we've been living in quarantine. On March 19th, 2020, California was the first state in the country to issue a stay-at-home order mandating that all California residents remain home unless they are essential workers. Shortly thereafter, the rest of the country followed suit. And I don't need to remind you of everything that followed in the next following 12 months, the devastating impact that it had on our economy, particularly small businesses, the exposure and the repercussions of social injustices that were happening in our nation, particularly against black and indigenous people of color, and the brewing tension in our nation's political divide, political divisiveness, uh, leading up to a really, really horrific insurrection at Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I think most Americans are going to walk away from these last 12 months with some wounds and scars. And we will have our own unique stories behind them. This experience that we are going through together is a collective experience, but in many ways, the ways that we are interpreting it and going through it as individuals will vary from person to person. And this past year has been quite traumatic for most of us. And time will tell what kind of damage that it will leave um, after all is said and done. Today, we just read from this passage in the Old Testament. Um, It's from a book called Isaiah, which is a collection of prophecies and wisdom writings from a very famous Jewish prophet named Isaiah. One of the recurring themes in this book is that Isaiah the prophet is warning his people, the Israelites, of their continual disobedience. Now, the Old Testament which was written before the birth of Jesus Christ, is about God's relationship with humankind. But he used, God used the Israelites as the primary example of how God relates with human beings. He wanted the Israelites to be a holy nation, which means a, a, a group of people who are set apart, who will live differently than the rest of the world. 
so that they could be light in a dark world, light in darkness. God blessed the Israelites. He protected them. He provided for them so that they could be a blessing to others. This has been the expectation of the Israelites from the very beginning. Starting with the Israelites' great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. This is a statement God said repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Ultimately, uh, unfortunately, the Israelites failed at this task of being light in a dark world. Which is uh, why we have the passage that we have today in the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah is a really interesting book because Isaiah is kind of like a microcosm of the entire Bible. Isaiah has 66 books or chapters in all, and they are divided up into two major sections, chapters 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. Chapters 1 through 39, a primary theme is God as judge. Okay, so this kind of overarching theme in the first part of the book of Isaiah is judgment. Interestingly, God would even use other nations who are not uh, God-fearing nations like Assyria or Babylon to carry out his judgment against his own people, the Israelites. And chapters 40 through 66 focuses on God as Savior. And so this overarching theme in chapters 40 through 66 is the theme of salvation. So the first part of the book of Isaiah really describes the Israelites as screwing up really bad. And the second part of the book of Isaiah focuses on God as kind of cleaning up after their mess. And the book of Isaiah, which is um, one thing that I found really surprising about the book of Isaiah, is that it is really Jesus-centered. Even though this is hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah is surprisingly Jesus-centered. And since Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 61, which is the passage that we read from today, uh, it's, it belongs in the second half of the book of Isaiah, Today's passage falls under that overarching theme of God as Savior. And when you look at our fallen, broken world today, don't you think that we are all in desperate need of a Savior? While most of us watching this and participating today might not be Israelites or like Jewish people um, or people from uh, Israeli descendants, but w most of us have been tremendously blessed. But the same command that God gave to the Israelites' ancestor, Abraham, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, to, that God will bless us so that we could be a blessing to all nations, is the same command that He gives to us today. In particular, people of faith. God blessed 
all of us in various ways so that we could be a blessing to others. And I don't know about you, but when I look back at this past year, starting from March 19th, we have tremendously failed at this, at this task, not just as a church, but just as like people who claim to be of moral and upstanding character. Um, if anything, this past year has really showed how wicked and how, how far we have fallen short from this type of set-apartness that God desired for us to be. We messed up. We messed up bad. And our, the only hope that can be found in our future is in Jesus Christ. Our hope cannot be found in humanity's intelligence, strength, or moral compass apart from God. The only thing that can save us is Jesus. And I'm not talking about the afterlife. I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the here and now. How can Jesus save us today from this dark, dark world that we live in? Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is giving us this prophecy in today's passage of the upcoming Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, okay? The one that has been promised to the Israelites for thousands and thousands of years. This prophecy, uh, this is just one of like literally hundreds of prophecies given in the Old Testament for the Son of God. But what makes this passage particularly unique is that Isaiah is speaking in the first person. The way that Jesus would be Savior is through these avenues to preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, and proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. These are some of the primary ways that Jesus would come as a Savior. Okay, and this is what Isaiah is prophesying. And this journey that Jesus would go through, okay, and we are in the series of Lent, right? So we have to remember that Lent is leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, his death, and ultimately his resurrection on Easter Sunday, right? And as I'm thinking about this, right, I'm just trying to get into the mental state and the emotion of Jesus leading up to uh, Good Friday, which is the day that we remember him being crucified on the cross. Jesus must have experienced several bouts of struggle um, while mentally and emotionally preparing for his arrival into Jerusalem. Jesus was, in many ways, in his own season of darkness. Yet there is reassurance in today's passage for those of us who are living in darkness. These are very, very dark times that we're living in. And I do not want to sugar, sugarcoat it and I don't want to like downplay it. These are very, very dark times that we are living in. Yet God gives us reassurance in today's passage. First, God reassures us that God is near the brokenhearted. God is near the brokenhearted. 
It says in verse 1 that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. And again, this is Isaiah speaking from the first person voice of the Messiah, the, the Messiah that they expect uh, and hope would come down the road, okay, which is Jesus Christ, all right? And this is before the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah is speaking from the first person. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus, speaking through the words of Isaiah, okay, he is speaking in first person and he is talking about all the things that we are living in right now. Okay, he's talking about bringing, proclaiming good news to the poor, okay, who are living on earth right now. He is talking about binding up the brokenhearted. And in other passages of scripture, it says that God is near the brokenhearted, okay, who are brokenhearted right now, who are devastated, who are emotionally wrecked, and to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. Jesus is really describing what it's like to live in this fallen, broken, and dark, dark world right now. And Jesus came to release us from all of that. And because God sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to live on this earth, right, as one of us, that Jesus Himself is familiar with pain and loneliness and suffering, God is near the brokenhearted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to experience physical, emotional, and mental pain. When we are in seasons of darkness, it may feel like to you that God is distant. But God reassures you today through this passage that God is in fact very near. God is near the brokenhearted. Last week, I shared with you that um, I've been struggling with depression uh, a little bit these days. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm getting better now, but it really reminded me of those seasons of depression that I struggled when I was a teenager, when I was much younger. And a lot of my depression came from my family of origin, particularly like my dad um, had a really severe drinking problem. He was never diagnosed, but I think he was alcoholic. Um, he was drunk more nights than he was sober. And um, I just prayed to God for years and this is even before i was a christian okay and i just prayed to god for years while my dad was drunk in the other room or he and my mom were fighting and yelling at each other in the other room uh, my brother and i would be um, in our bedroom and i would just be sitting up in my bed just praying to god right for years that god would take this away that god would heal my dad that he would stop drinking and that he would just be a normal sober dad and it didn't happen God didn't answer my prayers right away and after years and years of praying this I was so angry at God 
And it got to the point where in my prayers, I was like yelling at God and I was cussing at Him. I was cussing at God. I was so angry. And I just couldn't understand why God wouldn't take this away. Now, as an adult, I could look back at that season and um, I, I never really shared this story with many people because uh, I was um, kind of embarrassed that I was like cussing at God in my prayers. But I can share it now because God reassures me that He heard every single one of those prayers, even the ones where I was yelling at Him and cussing at Him. God heard every single one of those prayers. And in fact, they're kind of like reminiscent of some of the prayers that are found in the book of Psalms, where there's really no like um, resolve and uh, they're more like emotional rants than they are like formal prayers to God. I am thoroughly convinced that God heard every single one of those prayers because God knows what it's like to be brokenhearted. God is near the brokenhearted. And in seasons of darkness, when you feel like God is distant, uh, you, you can be reassured that He is near the brokenhearted. The other thing that this passage reassures us is that God comforts all of those who mourn. God comforts those who mourn. In verse 2, it says that uh, Jesus came or will come, I should say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And in the first part of verse 3, it says, to provide for those who grieve, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. God is available to heal you and comfort you. However, with that being said, you actually have to go to God. If you're carrying scars, if you're carrying wounds, you have to go to the doctor to, or to the physician or to someone who will heal you. If you have scars and if you have wounds, yet you don't take it to someone who can heal you, it may get worse. It could get infected, okay, or it could spread, or it could make you even more sick. There are so many people in this world, so many people I personally know, who are carrying around with them scars and wounds in their hearts, but they refuse to see anybody for help. They refuse to share it with any or show anybody these wounds, and uh, they refuse to like actually do anything about it and so they actually carry these scars and wounds with them forever without it ever properly healing and these wounds they fester and they grow and they get infected and they affect us in so many ways more than we care to realize i've shared many times that like i'm a big advocate for therapy i've been in individual therapy for many years and i've been in group therapy now for a couple of years um, once with uh, my former therapist who was um, dr carrie ann horn and now with my current therapist and a group of men um, that's led by my therapist roy kim and um, 
I, I recommend to people here and there um, that they should uh, see a therapist. And I try, <laughs> it's really, really hard to recommend that to people without offending them, right? But um, uh, it's, it's not surprising to me that most of the people in the world who need therapy the most will never see a therapist. It's really the people who need therapy the most will never see a therapist. And unfortunately, this is the same with our spirituality. Most of the people who desperately need God the most will actually never go to God. God can and wants to comfort all of those who mourn and provide for those who grieve. But we actually have to go to Him. We actually have to go to God. And the last thing that this passage teaches us is that God's people can respond like God. God's people can respond like God. When people of faith allow God to come near us and we realize that God is near the brokenhearted, and when we allow God to comfort us when we mourn and to provide for us when we grieve, we enter into this space where we become more and more like God. When we realize that God is near the brokenhearted and we allow God to comfort us when we mourn and grieve, God softens our hearts and we become more and more like God. The end of verse 3 says this, They will be like, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Isn't that beautiful? They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. This actually reminds me of something else that Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, she will bear much fruit. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Since Jesus is righteous, since he is loving, since he is full of joy, since he is compassionate, since Jesus is all of these things, when we draw near to him and when we allow Jesus to comfort us, we become more and more like him. We become these extensions of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the vine, kind of like a trunk of a tree. And then we are the branches. We literally become extensions of Jesus Christ. As... Um, as a dad, as a parent, I am naturally protective of my children. Uh, my daughter now is nine and my son is five years old. Um, and I remember when my daughter, um, Emily, was in um, preschool. One day I was picking her up from her school and uh, I noticed that she had this like big scratch on her face. You could tell it was like a fresh scratch and it was it was red it had not scabbed yet right and i was like so upset when i saw that um 
and uh, the teacher knew she could tell by the look on my face that like I was I was livid and the teacher like came up to me tried to like calm me down and she said oh Mr. Han I'm so sorry but um Emily's classmate accidentally scratched her because she had like long fingernails they were just playing but she accidentally scratched her and it's it, it, it she was bleeding a little bit and I was like so pissed I was like so pissed I wanted to like kill this kid that like okay not literally kill me uh kill her <laughs> but I, I really wanted to like punish this kid for hurting my daughter and I also wanted to like punish her parents for being bad negligent parents how dare they not clip her nails properly <laughs> or like you know in time and I was so mad and I knew that um it was an accident right I knew that it was an accident but I was still super upset right now it says that uh God is um a, a God of vengeance in verse 2 okay it, it calls that Isaiah says that uh, God is a God of vengeance. Now, if I, as uh, an earthly dad, um, wanted to cause all this harm on this preschool girl who accidentally hurt my daughter, how much more would God, as a God of vengeance, want to carry out his righteous wrath on those who purposefully hurt his children? In many ways, this past year has revealed God's anger in different forms. Just as we remember that COVID lockdown uh, began a year ago, we also remember the killing of Breonna Taylor just over a year ago. And there still is no justice done about it. And people are still really angry about it, and, and rightfully so. Every week, I'm reading updates and, and uh, news stories of elderly Asian men and women who are being randomly attacked because of oblivious, ignorant hate crimes. That makes me super angry, and I know that makes all, a lot of you angry. And just a couple days ago, George Floyd's family uh, will, um, it's been, it came out that George Floyd's family will receive a historic $27 million settlement from the city of Minneapolis. Now, while this will never replace George Floyd's life, it is a token of reckoning for the unjust murder of George Floyd. And many Christians, in response to the atrocious insurrection on January 6th, um, came together and formed an alliance called the Christians Against Christian Nationalism. This was really in response, uh, you know, because so many of us were outraged, disgusted, and indignant about what happened on, um, in our nation's capital on January 6th. Uh, a group of various, people, uh, various uh, religious leaders came together uh, as people of faith to really make a statement against Christian nationalism. And it was so wonderful to see so many... Uh, pastors, spiritual leaders uh, from different denominations coming together, united at their um, anger against uh, and rejection against Christian nationalism. Here in, on their website, as you can see, it says uh, their statement is, 
Today we are concerned about a persistent threat to both our religious communities and our democracy, Christian nationalism. And it doesn't just say gener generically nationalism, they specify Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism demands Christianity be privileged by the state and implies that to be a good American, one must be Christian. We reject this damaging political ideology and invite our Christian brothers and sisters to join us in opposing this threat to our faith and to our union. And then there's this list of statements that they abide by. As Christians, we are bound to Christ, not by citizenship, but by faith. We believe that, and you know, I'm not going to read all of these, but some of them that stood out to me is, patriotism does not require us to minimize our religious convictions. Uh, religious instruction is best left to our houses of worship and families. Uh, America's historic commitment to religious pluralism enables faith communities to live in civic harmony with one another without sacrificing our theological convictions. Conflating religious authority will with political authority is idolatrous. And this is the last one. We must stand up to and speak out against Christian nationalism, especially when it inspires acts of violence and intimidation against religious communities at home and abroad. Now you might be thinking to yourself, um, we live in an age of outrage. So many people are angry all the time. Do we really need more anger in this world? And what God would tell us today is no. We need more righteous anger in this world. We need more righteous anger in this world, not human natural anger. We need more righteous anger in this world. As I said before, when we allow God to come near us when we're brokenhearted and comfort us when we mourn, we enter into this space where we become more and more like God. The things that break God's heart break our hearts. The things that make God angry make us angry. And the things that bring God joy bring us joy. And this is how we leave our spaces of darkness and enter into spaces of light. I'll close with this one quote. And I'll leave a few minutes afterwards for us to individually pray in response. Author and pastor Christine Kane said this, Sometimes when you're in a dark place and you think that you've been buried, but actually you've been planted. Amen.